You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. Good to be with you here. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here. We're gonna do something a little different this morning. Instead of our traditional block, our traditional uh, scripture reading, I'm gonna dive into uh, Genesis 34. I'd like to invite you to turn with me there to Genesis 34 as we continue our, our study here. This is um, something I, I, we've said several times in this Genesis series in particular, and we've said it here at Northway for a while, but especially if you're new with us, one of the things we love to do at Northway Church is we love on Sundays to, to teach through books of the Bible a book at a time. And we'll go chapter by chapter, some, many times verse by verse. Um, and there's a lot of advantages to that, a lot of pros to that is that you... You don't get a cherry pick. You take the whole counsel of God. So you don't just get to pick um, little passages here and there or topics here and there. We take the whole counsel of God. The disadvantage of that, the con to that, is you don't get a cherry pick. And it means when, when hard chapters come, we, we have to deal with them. And this is one of those chapters. And in the book of Genesis, we've been tracing the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise of redemption against all kinds of threats that come away, come against those promises. Uh, sometimes the threats to God's promises are external. We see them in scripture. We've seen them in Genesis so far. They can be very uh, real enemies that come against God's people and God's promises, can be persecution, can be uh, even geographical or um, environmental things like famine that comes against. And they, they seem like threats in the moment that, against, that are against God's plans. Sometimes those threats aren't external. Sometimes they're internal. They're the threats that come from God's own people. The very ones he made these promises to tend to find ways to stand in the way of those promises. And the theme that we see all throughout Genesis is it doesn't matter what those threats are, God is faithful to his promises. Not even his own people, not even a real enemy can thwart God's promises from being fulfilled. God is faithful. And that is certainly what we are seeing um, in this section of scripture that we're in in Genesis. But what we're gonna see in this chapter is we are gonna see the unintended consequences of compromise and indifference. We've seen a lot of growth in Jacob. Remember, God made specific promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've been zeroing in on Jacob and God's made promises to him. And we've seen a lot of transformation in Jacob's life. But in this chapter, we're gonna see some backsliding. We're gonna see Jacob return to some of his old ways here in chapter 34. And I need to warn you again, it's a hard chapter. It can be very distressing to some. We've got hard themes in this chapter. Sexual assault takes place in this chapter. Uh, mass murder, vengeance, uh, violence are all in this chapter. It's incredibly heavy. And so we say that, yes, certainly, uh, for mindful of young ears that are in the room, but also mindful of those who can be distressed uh, with this content. And that's why we're gonna have um, people available, men and women available, even after the service, should it land difficult on you. There are folks who can walk with you and pray with you. We'd love to do that. But as awful as this chapter is, I think it also is here to point us to the steadfast faithfulness of God's promise to bring about redemption in our lives and bring healing uh, in these spaces where sin has destroyed so many lives. 
Now, that being said, I'm gonna read this chapter. I wanna read it as a whole. I want you to understand the story here and then we'll quickly walk through some of the themes here. Chapter 34, starting in verse one. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, and his father Hamor deceitfully because they had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor, the son of, uh, and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let us dwell in the land and trade in it for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. As painful as it is. Three major episodes are recorded in this text for us. The first episode is in verses one through three. It's Shechem's assault on Dinah. The second episode is verses four through 24. It's Hamor, his dad, Hamor's barter for Dinah and the integration of all the Israelites with the Canaanites. And then the third movement there is in verses 25 to 31. It is the vengeance that is carried out by her brothers, Simeon and Levi. Each of these three movements in the Hebrew, it translates a little bit in the English, are outlined well. Verse one, Dinah went out. Verse six, Hamor went out. And verse 25 and 26, the brothers then went out and came against These are the movements here in this text. And I want to quickly walk through these three movements. And then I really want to spend the bulk of our time asking and answering the question, why is this chapter here? Let's deal with the first section right up front, verses one through three. It's an absolutely horrific scene here on multiple fronts. We have Dinah who goes out here. She is the only daughter of Jacob and Leah. Remember Jacob at this point, he's got four wives. He's got 12 sons between those wives and only one daughter, Dinah. Most guesses is that Dinah is somewhere between the ages of 13 and 20 when this episode takes place, which for me hits on all kinds of sober levels because that's the exact age range as all five of my daughters right now. And think about this, I can't even fathom, but we're told here that she went out to see the women of the land. And we're gonna find out in a moment, that is an ominous introduction. And we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But the idea is that they find themselves in the city of Shechem. Shechem is a city or a town that is right in the middle of Israel today. It is in the heart from north, south, east, west. It is right dead center in the middle of Israel the land of Canaan at this time, and they are surrounded by Canaanites. There's all kinds of tribes of Canaanites, the Hivites being one of them, but they're all Canaanites and they are a pagan worshiping people. They do not worship Yahweh. They do not worship Israel's God, the one true God. They worship false gods and their practices in that worship are incredibly horrific. Their their culture, their ethic is not woven through the design of God in creation, it is woven out of the lusts of mankind. And Dinah goes out to see the women of the land here. She's curious. And here she is approached by a man named Shechem of which this town is named after. 
So he's no ordinary Canaanite. He's a prominent citizen. Not just a prominent citizen, he's the prince of this land. His dad is the king, Hamor. But he is a prince, the favored son of Hamor. And I want you to notice the verbs in verse two and the order of those verbs. He saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. The word humiliated can also be translated raped, violated, humbled, ravished, shamed, defiled, all terms for a violent sexual assault on an innocent victim. Unbelievable trauma Dinah experiences at the hands of this man. But then to compound this, I want you to notice the verbs and the order of the verbs in verse three. They don't belong here. In verse three, he was then drawn to her. He loved her and he spoke tenderly to her. Verse three does not seem to fit with verse two. And yet this is so descriptive of how how unbelievably horrific this whole scene is. What we are meant to see here is an absolute inversion of God's design for human sexuality and relationships. In God's design, there is an order that matters. In God's design, there is first a mutual drawing to one another of the opposite sex, male and female, mutually drawn to one another in love. There is a speaking tenderly to one another. It is then followed at some point by a intentional commitment the Bible describes as a covenant, an unbreakable promise of betrothing one to the other for the good of the other. And as a result, only following that commitment, that covenant in love and and fidelity comes then the expression of that covenant where the two freely give of themselves and their bodies to one another as an expression of that covenant and that love. And that is the God design order that is intended for human flourishing. When that order plays out in a relationship, that relationship is intended to flourish. That is not what happens here. This wicked man, Shechem, inverts that design. Just as we see in our culture, unbelievably too often. He inverts that design. And out of a one-way, insatiable, selfish consumption of his own desires of his flesh, he overpowers and he abuses Dinah as a victim. And then he does it all in the name of love. As so many abusers have done, they violate their victim and then come around to surround it with words of love. Oh, you know how much I love you. You know how much you mean to me. It is an absolute inversion of God's design, backwards, twisted, and abusive. And just so we're clear, the biblical understanding of love as it is embodied in Jesus Christ and it is described as Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, biblical love as God designed it, notice these characteristics. True love is patient True love is kind 
It doesn't envy, it, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude. And make note of this, true biblical love does not insist on its own way, nor does it rejoice at wrongdoing. See, this guy defines his love as an inversion of what God said true love actually is. This love is not godly, this love is demonic. And what we find again in the scriptures, in other words, true love is self-giving, not self-taking. For any in this room, and I know in a room this size, there are many. For any in this room who've experienced this kind of abuse, this kind of manipulation, this kind of trauma, I just wanna say, I'm so sorry. That is not God's design for human sexuality and human flourishing in relationships. Here at Northway Church, we want to be a place that is safe for abuse victims. We, uh, two primary things you wanna do. Number one, we want every time we gather to hold up truth, not lies. To hold up what God's design is for that human flourishing so we will not forget. So even in our jacked up backwards world where Hollywood is trying to convince us and the relationships around us are trying to convince us of what love is, we always wanna go to God's word and hold God's word up as the source, the standard for what real truth is so we can adjust and live our lives that way. But secondly, for any who have been the victim of an inversive abuse of God's design, we want this to be a place where you can feel cared for, where we can come around one another, we can comfort one another, and we can point one another to where healing can be found. And to do that in a place where you're not gonna be shamed for doing so. And if that's you, we would just love to point you to a few things, certainly would love. We're gonna have men and women that'll be down front many of which are from our care and counseling team at Northway. We would love to visit with you, to pray with you, to point you towards resources and help for healing. Make that available to you. If you're uncomfortable with that, you'd rather go to our website. You can go to our care and counseling page and you can submit a request and we can have uh, Amanda Seeley or one of our care and counseling team reach out for you and, and help you. You can jump into one of our gospel care classes even this fall. There are lots of avenues and help that are around here that we can point you to and walk with you in. We'd love to do so. Now, what we find out in verses four through 24 is that this wasn't actually some one-off event by one rogue man named Shechem. This was actually endemic to the whole culture of the people of Shechem. And it was pioneered and tolerated by none other than Shechem's dad, Hamor who aids and abeds in this abuse. You see in verses four through 12, Shechem tells his dad, hey, I want her. I, I think I love this woman actually, I want her. Go get her for me, go to her dad. Again, total inverse thing here. And, and so Hamor, rather than rebuking his son, calling his son out, holding his son up to justice, Hamor aids and abeds. He goes to Jacob, he goes to Dinah's dad. And he's gonna go, hey, my son not only wants Dinah, we want all your daughters and we can make a deal. You can have our daughters. We can actually come together and we can integrate. Now, I know with all the stories that are in this text, a lot of these feel like they're getting the press. Don't miss the lead press here. The temptation in this chapter 
is the total integration of Israel and the Canaanites. That was never supposed to be. Israel is meant to be distinct, set apart for the blessing of the nations, not by joining with them in their pagan practices. But this is exactly what's on the table now as Hamor is inviting Jacob and his family into integration here. And upon hearing this, Jacob does nothing. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But his 12 sons eventually hear of this plan and they are incensed. They are incensed. Why are they incensed? This is their sister. And so in verse 13 through 17, uh, two particular men are gonna concoct a plan. Simeon and Levi. Why these two? Because these are actually the biological brothers of Dinah. And so they concoct a plan and it is to fool the Shechemites into thinking that they're gonna take the deal, that we're gonna come together and we're gonna integrate. But here is the condition. In our religion, it's against our religion to intermarry women with foreign nations, pagan nations, and pagan gods, uncircumcised men. So if you're willing to convert, if you're willing to have all your men become circumcised and join with us, hey, then we're in on this deal. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Most grown men would tap out at this point. You know what? I think I'm good. Don't think at this stage in my life, if I hadn't been circumcised already, uh, I don't think this is the time to do it. I think we'll pass on the deal But in verses 18 through 24, we're gonna find out just how desperate and sick this culture is to strike this deal. In verses 18 through 24, Hamor goes back to his people. He goes to the leading men of the city. They're in the gates of the city and he explains the terms. Hey, if we're willing to get circumcised, a little bit of pain for a few days, we're gonna gain all of these people and their possessions. And notice the motivations are kind of hinted at there in verse 23, as if this may not just be a, um, a mutual motivated deal of let's just share resources. It sounds as if we're gonna take their bribe and then we're gonna get everything for us in verse 23. We're gonna integrate, we're gonna take all these possessions for ourselves And so all the men of the city are in and every single male gets circumcised. Now, please don't miss the lead on this story. Not one man in that entire city had a problem with what Shechem did to Dinah. Not one man. No humanity, no dignity, just treating the women and the people here like livestock, like mere property. And yet you juxtapose that against uh, Simeon and Levi. They at least have some sense of justice. In verse seven, they, they said this was an outrageous act in Israel. Such a thing must not be done. There's a sense of justice within Simeon and Levi that this is not how you treat image bearers of God. So... In verses 25 to 29, these brothers execute their plan. While all the men of Shechem are recovering after their circumcision, multiple days where they're just laid up in pain, cannot move, it is then, and the plan all along, that these two brothers, probably with some of their servants, go in and kill every one of these men with a sword. 
Now there's a deep irony to this even part of the story. I won't go into too much graphic detail here, but essentially two things are happening with circumcision here. Number one, they choose to take the very part of the male anatomy that was used in the original sin against their sister. And they're gonna use that part of the male anatomy as a trap that will ultimately bring about their death. But secondly, they use circumcision, which is the covenantal sign that God gave his people of the promise of his redemption. Remember, through you, Abraham, through your seed, an old man whose wife was barren, they had no ability to have kids, it's through your seed that I'm gonna bring forth a child and not just one child, a whole bunch of descendants, but one of those is going to be the one, the Messiah, in whom all the earth will be blessed, Jesus Christ. And so I am giving you a sign placed on that part of your body so you'll never forget who's gonna come through on this promise, me. And this was the the sign of redemption, of life and rebirth. And yet Simeon and Levi are gonna use that sign as an instrument of death in this, play, in this uh, event here. This would be the same as you and I taking some of our worst enemies who are not Christians and we try to strike a deal with them and say, hey, here's the deal. We'll go all in on you. Just need you to come up to Northway on a celebration Sunday and I need you to get in the baptismal waters. And then right when they're in there, that's when we hold them under and send them to their death. That's essentially what's happening right here. Now, let me just say, there is probably not one of us in this room who cannot sympathize with these two brothers and their righteous anger, their hatred of sin and their desire for justice for their victimized sister. Every one of us can feel that. We should feel that within us. And certainly I have grown up watching enough Liam Neeson movies and Avenger movies now to where there's this peace within me that just wants to say in this text, if I'm honest, good, they got what they deserved. Good for you, Simeon and Levi. Man, I'm so thankful you went in there, you took justice for your, your victimized sister. Way to go. But that being said, we need to be clear here. What these men do, even though we may share in their motivations, was not justice. Justice is rooted in righteousness. This was vengeance. This was retribution. And this was rooted in sin-centered revenge where the punishment exceeds the crime. Rather than calling Shechem to account or even Hamor to account and doling out a punishment that is measured accordingly with them and what they did, they instead murder an entire community and they capture all these innocent women and children and they loot their entire town. This was not justice. This was sin-centered vengeance. Paul told the Ephesian church, be angry. There is a good kind of anger that you should have, a righteous anger. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Paul also told the church at Rome that yes, you are certainly to seek justice for wrongs that have been done to you, justice. But as a child of God, you are never to take personal and unbridled revenge 
for a wrong that has been done to you. But instead, and Paul said, told the Roman church, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 32, which said, leave room for God's wrath, for it is his to revenge and he will repay. Deuteronomy 32, by the way, when God says revenge is mine, not yours, Deuteronomy 32, do you know who he's saying it against? It's the Canaanites. It's what these people had done. God says, I'm gonna take care of it. I promise you, you can seek justice right now, no doubt. But when it comes to ultimate justice, areas that you can't even bring about, I'm going to have the final say. You and I may not always see justice in our lifetime. We should uphold it. We should defend it. We should pursue it. But we may not always see it perfectly from a human standpoint. But rest assured, you need to know any injustice that has been done out there. There is a day coming when God will have the final say with all evildoers. Those who have not turned to Jesus for forgiveness, who have not repented of their sin, God will have the final say. He will repay for their evil ways so you can leave that to him. Later at the end of his life, by the way, Jacob, when he is speaking a blessing over all 12 of his sons at the end of Genesis, that will become the 12 tribes of Israel and all the blessing for all the sons, there's only two sons that Jacob does not bless. Do you know who they are? Simeon and Levi. Listen to this, Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their words. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory be not joined to their company. Why? For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So indeed, the act of these two brothers, though we can understand the anger, the motivation, it is condemned what they did. It is not justice. It was sin-filled vengeance. So that's our tragic story that we have here. But here's the big question that we got to ask. Why is this chapter here? Why is this here? We've seen such amazing things in the life of Jacob's thus far. We've seen his transformation. He was just hugging it out with Esau last week. He's reconciling with his brother. There's so much growth. And even when we get to chapter 35, we're gonna see repentance and restoration and other things going on here. But you go, why is this here? What happened? And again, I think it's important to note, this is not just a story primarily about the abuse of Dinah, though it's awful as it is. This is not primarily a story about the sins of Simeon and Levi that were done to the Shechemites though it is. This is a story about Jacob's compromise. This is a story about his passive indifference in choosing to shortcut the commands of God in seeking to pursue his own comfort and his own self-protection at the expense of others. Let's unpack that just a little bit. Compromise and indifference. Where do we see this in this text? Compromise. The first question we have to answer is why is Jacob in Shechem? Why is Jacob in Shechem? The answer to that goes back to chapter 28. In chapter 28, when, when Jacob was in Bethel, before he's about to head out on a 20-year wandering with his uncle Laban, he comes to this place and he has an encounter with God 
and he worships God there. He names the place Bethel, the house of the Lord. And he makes a vow that if God is gonna do all he said he's gonna do for me, then when I get back from this journey, I'm coming to Bethel. I'm setting up this altar again and I'm worshiping God here. And then at the end of his wandering years with, with Laban in chapter 31, God calls him to return. It's time to go home now. I want you to go to Bethel. But at the end of chapter 33, we see that Jacob not only settles in Shechem, he buys land here and he sets up shop here. He was not supposed to do this. Ironically, you got to go, where is Bethel? Bethel is only 20 miles south of Shechem. It's a one day's journey. And so the question is, why did Jacob stop short, come all this way as he vowed to do and doesn't go to Bethel, but he stops 20 miles short in Shechem? We need to know something about these cities. These two cities are interesting. Bethel was a barren city. Bethel was a windblown, barren, desolate town. There was nothing there. That's why I always saw in chapter 28 was Jacob and a stone pillow. There was nothing there. Wasn't very populated. They would have been all alone there. And that was the point. God still had work to do in Jacob. He wanted him alone. He didn't want him to assimilate just yet in and around the Canaanites. He wanted him to himself to continue this work of formation. And this is exactly what God does with a lot of folks. We see it in scripture. John the Baptist goes down to the desert and he's alone there with God for quite some time. We see Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness with God alone. We see Paul, after he's converted, spends three years in the Arabian desert alone with God and his Bible. And this is God's formation. And in Bethel, that's what God wanted with Jacob. In Bethel, there wasn't an opportunity for Dinah to go out and see the women of the land because they weren't there. And so instead, Jacob chose to set up shop in Shechem. Now, what do we know about Shechem? One ancient scholar describes Shechem in one word, paradise. Listen to this other description. Another one said it's nestled between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. It's in a valley and it's filled with lush gardens of vegetables and orchards of all kinds and fruits, It's watered by fountains that burst forth in various streams. He put in there, and I quote, we saw nothing to compare with it in all of Canaan was Shechem. So Jacob sees this and he stops 20 miles short of God's command, 20 miles short of God's promise to protect and to provide, 20 miles short from what God can do so that he can settle for what man can do. He can prosper here. He can increase his favor here. That's what Jacob wants. We have a term for this. It's called compromise. And compromise always comes with unintended consequences. Make no mistake, Shechem and his father, Hamor, they are fully complicit, fully responsible for their sins against Dinah. Nobody put a gun to Shechem's head and made him do what he did. He did it out of his own volition. She was an innocent victim. He abused her. But for the original Hebrew audience that's reading this, they're intended to see that none of this would have happened had Jacob just gone to Bethel as he was supposed to do. Had he not stopped 
short. Interestingly enough, do you notice the first words of chapter 35, verse one? And God, and God told Jacob to go to Bethel. You get where you were supposed to go and God is gonna call him to repentance in chapter 35. And so there's compromise, but along with compromise often comes indifference. And we see this in Jacob too in this text. Notice how many times Jacob has had a chance to do something about what happened and he did nothing. Look at verse five of chapter 34. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but look at the end there. There shouldn't be a but, by the way, right after that. You find out that your daughter has been abused and the next word is but, shouldn't happen. But eventually we see here, he held his peace. He had a chance to confront Hamor and he didn't do it. He waited till his sons came up and his sons come in. Jacob doesn't say anything. He wants to preserve peace rather than speak up. So he goes passive in this moment, just like Adam in the garden in Genesis three, sitting there while his wife's being tempted. And because dad won't say anything, who has to step in in this moment? The sons, the sons. They shouldn't be in this position. Kevin DeYoung says it best concerning this text. He says this, it is often the sin of the coward that paves the way for the sin of the zealot. In other words, when a leader does not pursue justice in the right way, someone else will come along and pursue justice in the wrong way. This is true politically, theologically, and in the church. Now again, why these two brothers, Simeon and Levi? Because they are amongst the biological brothers of Leah, or of Dinah. They are Leah's sons. One of the things that we have learned over and over in the Jacob narrative is that Jacob plays favorites, just like his parents. Jacob doesn't love Leah, he loves Rachel. So we learn here part of his indifference is because he doesn't care about that side of the family. He doesn't care about Dinah. He doesn't care about as much in this moment about Simeon and Levi. Oh, those are Leah's kids. Those aren't Rachel's kids. It's why Moses is very careful in verse one to introduce Dinah to us first as the daughter of Leah. That is a tip off to the original readers why Jacob does what he does or why he doesn't do what he should in this text. Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Genesis 34 says this concerning Dinah. Think about who Dinah is to all the characters in this text. Dinah is an object of passion to Shechem. She's a bargaining chip to Hamor. She's a source of moral outrage for her brothers. And notice this, she is a passive indifference to her father. And the reason Jacob doesn't care enough about his daughter who has been victimized enough to step in and do something as a dad should do is because we see at the end of this chapter, he is all too busy caring for himself, protecting himself in order to go care and protect for his daughter. See this in verse 30. So Jacob, or I'm sorry, verse 30 of chapter 34 Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. And then he goes on to say, man, they're gonna outnumber me. You've put me in a bad position here, both me and my household. In other words, Jacob doesn't 
care about his daughter getting assaulted by Shechem. He doesn't even care about the unlawful vengeance carried out by two of his sons. He is mainly obsessed with how all of this is gonna look about him. Interestingly enough, in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses is careful to use the words, Jacob safely arrived in Shechem. You're meant to see that and go, safe for who? Safe for Dinah? Safe for his sons? Safe for the Shechemites? No, it was safe for Jacob. It was a business deal. Which is why this chapter ends in verse 31 so cryptically with his sons rebuking him that he cares more about himself than his daughter being treated like a prostitute. Church, this is one of the most painful chapters in all the Bible for me. It is as awful as it is devastating. Interestingly enough, did you notice that in this chapter, there's not one mention of the name of God in this chapter? Where is God? Oh, he's there, he's present, but explicitly, isn't it interesting? The very last verse of chapter 33, you see God's name. The very first verse of chapter 35, you see God's name, but his name is nowhere present here. And that is not by accident. Chapter 34 is meant to show us what happens when we disconnect from God and we backslide. These are the unintended consequences of compromise and indifference. And so what do we do with this text? I think three things come to mind right off um, the top for me. Three things that I just wanna speak to here in this moment. One, again, I wanna speak to those in this room who have suffered from abuse and particularly sexual abuse or sexual assault. How very sorry I am. This is, again, not part of God's design for human flourishing. Abuse and assault is one of the clearest evidences that Genesis 3 is not allegory, it's real. That sin is real. That the curse that is over the earth is real. What stems from our hearts on any given day that wants to rebel against God and his created order is real. And it's within every one of us. It's not just in those people out there. Every one of us at every given day are presented with the opportunity to deviate from God's plan and God's design and seek what appears to be right in our own eyes. And it has incredible consequences. And to those who have suffered at the hands of abuse, at the deviation of God's design, There are several lies that are easy to believe and every one of them are from the pit of hell. One of those lies is that this is all my fault. There is no fault here. There may be situations and setups that shouldn't have been there. There is a telltale ominous sign of certainly his daughter going out to see the women of the land of curiosity, but that is not her fault. That fault lies on one person who chose to commit those actions. That is not your fault. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The other, another lie you can tend to believe is that I'm all alone in this. You're not all alone. I talked to several folks, even after the 9 a.m., who had that same feeling in tears of going, man, I just feel so alone in this. And I'm telling you, in a room this size, sadly, you're not alone. But more importantly, you have a heavenly father who loves you, a God who knows what it means to identify with the hurting. You have a God 
who knows the abuse and mistreatment of his own son. And he is near to the brokenhearted. He is, he's got the authority and the power to bind up the wounds of those who have been victimized and hurt and bring healing. And that's one of the third lies is that there's not a path forward for me. That this shame and filthiness that I've experienced now has to be the garments I have to wear the rest of my life. There's not a path forward for me. And that is another lie from the pit of hell that runs completely counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came not only to to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us of our sin, but even the shame and the guilt that comes from the sins of others that have victimized us. There's a big doctrine within the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a doctrine called not just justification, the forgiveness of sin, it's called expiation. So God doesn't just cover the sins, he actually removes them. He casts them off and the shame that comes with them. They would take a goat and they would literally lay hands on it, transfer, and that goat would would send out. One would be sacrificed to shed its blood. The other one would be sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And that is what happens with not only our sin, but our shame. And since Jesus came up out of that grave, there is resurrection involved. And he has the power to bring healing. He has the power to transform our hurts, to wash us clean. He is the God of second first times. He's the God of new beginnings and new life. And if you have not met Jesus Christ, may you know him today. May you put your trust in him. May you receive the love of the father that is for you and the promise of God that one day he will make all this right and he will restore you as if nothing has ever happened, brand new. This is the power of Jesus Christ in the cross and the resurrection. I would say secondly, and I think for every one of us in this room, there's an opportunity to search our hearts in a text like this. Do some introspection and ask the Lord right now, are there any areas of compromise and indifference in my life? What areas in your life right now have you stopped 20 miles short of what God called you to? What areas in your life have you pulled up 20 miles out from what righteousness should look like? Ask the Lord to show you those areas, to convict you of those areas, to repent of those areas and to make your way to Bethel, knowing that God's grace is with you. His covering and provision is with you. Do some business with the Lord today. Let us not be a people who drift in compromise who entertain deals with the nations around us so we might look like them. Let us be a people whom God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, has called us out, has made us distinct, has separated us, that though we live here in this world, we are not of this world, and we can represent as ambassadors of his kingdom the good news of Jesus Christ to those who so desperately need to see it. Let us live distinct for his glory. And certainly those areas of compromise, yes, they may start in the context of this passage with fathers in this room, parents in this room, understanding our decisions affect multiple lives, not just our own, but you need to know this, compromise and indifference doesn't start in parenting. Starts as a single, starts in your childhood. It starts right now. Understanding the decisions you make, singles in this room right now, they don't just affect you. They can affect generations to come for good or for worse. 
And so may you seize the grace of God that's been given to you to motivate you towards righteous obedience and following Jesus Christ so that we can live distinct for him. And the third thing, the last thing I would just say coming out of this text, the theme of this chapter is not just the sins of Jacob and the sins of Shechem and the sins of Simeon and Levi. The real theme is the invincibility of God's promise. God's story is not done with Dinah. God's story is not done with Simeon and Levi. It's not done with Jacob and it's not done with you and I. God's promises will prevail. No threat will thwart the promises of God. Through Leah will come the chosen line in which the Messiah will come, Jesus Christ will come and give his life for the sins of all of us in this room that we might be forgiven and made new. God is not done with you. He is not done with me. By God's grace, his plans will not be thwarted. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we need to hear that reminder this morning. God, that your plans are invincible. That chapter 34 of our lives does not have to be the final story. There is a chapter 35. In you, O Jesus Christ, all things can be made new. All wounds can be healed. Lord, I pray for the courage of those who have experienced either compromise or indifference or even victimization and trauma in this room, that they would not choose to touch that wound irresponsibly, but they would choose to touch it responsibly, to bring their wounds to you, O God, so that you can heal them. Lord, whether it's the men and women that'll be available down front, whether it's the resources that we have here in the church, or certainly just the nearness and comfort of the Holy Spirit in this room, would you do your ministering work? Would you set us apart, God, for your glory? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.